Welcome to CFO Insights. I'm Guy Hutchinson, one of the Startup CFO Group founders and the host of this podcast. In this episode, we're interviewing Paddy Fletcher, formerly in senior finance roles at Halo and WeWork, and now co-founder at the Port of Leith Distillery. Paddy shares his insights on finance careers in startups and scale-ups. We unpick some of the challenges building out a financial discipline in an early stage company and the insights gained in developing that. He explains how traditional distilling has been disrupted and how board expectations can be managed when you build for the midterm. We talk in detail about his career journey and Paddy shares some interesting reveals on why CFOs make great founders. Paddy, welcome to the podcast. Guy, hello, hello. It's great to have you on. So uh, we should we should give everybody a quick rundown on your background. So you were one of the first members of the Startup CFO group, I think certainly in the first 10 or so back in the days that you were at Halo. <laughs> but you really had this quite interesting financial career where you focused on some VC-backed startups, you've been involved in a really well-known scale-up, and now you're a founder. Yes, thanks very much for having me on this point. I think my my career has, you know, quite inadvertently ended up in, in the startup world. And I think I'm very grateful for that. I was working for um, BDOs when I, when I trained and then I moved into industry. And then one of my old clients from BDO gave me a call one day and said, please come and work for me at this crazy startup halo. And at the time, startups weren't cool in the way that they are today. No one's actively saying when they leave school, I want to work in a startup. But I, but I hated that that industry job so much, I went to go and work for him. Uh, and that led to this wonderful career in startups with Halo, then with Y Plan, uh, and then finally with with WeWork. And I think that was such a stroke of luck for me that uh, it also then led, in fact, to to where we are today in terms of building this business up in Edinburgh, this whiskey and, and uh, spirits business. Were there sort of key moments where, you know, you were obviously at some point you got some corporate experience like, you know, good many of us did and then you saw that there were these really energetic exciting startup environments and then suddenly you're looking towards maybe at some point you're not the one working for the founder you're the one who is the founder i think what's fascinating about working in 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 finance specifically is quite how much visibility you get of the whole business that most people who work for that comp- that business don't get uh, and a lot of it is very industry specific. You know, you can work in marketing for lots of different companies and you'll get a certain understanding of the product and the customer, but you won't really see the whole picture really. Um, but I think in finance, you very quickly learn and, and every industry is, is different. Every industry has almost like a little kind of trick as to where they make all their money. And you don't realize that until you're really embedded and you think that it's one thing. You, know, you might think that, you know, Taxi companies make loads of money on uh, Friday night at six till seven p.m. And you don't actually realize that most of them make most of their money, you know, from corporate bookings between ten and eleven on a Tuesday morning, because you're not that person, but but lots of people are, and that's where the money's to be made. And I think in in finance you see that, and that's why I think people who work in finance um, are often undervalued, if that's the right phrase. Um, by the rest of the, the the company in terms of understanding what the whole stack of that of that business is. Um, so you know, going through all those businesses, I think what you know surprised me was how 
you know, how, how little information there was from the founders about how they started those businesses and where they were going to. And you sort of fumble your way towards what could be the right answer. And I think that gave me certainly and my business partner a, a huge benefit in the sense that it, it was almost like a, a free ticket that says, don't worry, these guys don't know what they're doing either. That's fine. You just need to get going. And if you can build that business on the back of kind of making it up as you go along, that's how most businesses are made because no one really knows what's inside these industries until you kind of get going. Um, and I yeah, think exactly. so, so, so like when you kind of play that back, uh, Paddy, there's, there's a couple of things there, aren't there? Right. So there's, there's firstly the kind of unique position of finance where in an early stage business, you can be yeah, maybe slightly undervalued or even under-resourced, but you have a really holistic overview of everything that's happening in the business. And so at some level, you position, you are building this position as being this trusted advisor who could probably advise on any component of the commercial operations. So you have that where you're building the data set to be able to inform decisions, but it might take some time for those decisions to come. And then you've got this second piece where actually as a founder, you just need to get some traction because the traction gives you data and the data ultimately tells you what your business might be. Absolutely. I think what's, you know, what's most valuable about working in finance is that piece where you're trying to build a budget for the next one or two years and you're looking at these long-term things and you can, you know, you, you, you put some numbers on a spreadsheet and you drag it out to the right and see where, where it ends up. Um, now, I've never built a budget that's correct, but you, you, you get better at understanding where the flows of the cash are and, and crucially are not on that business. Um, and I think if you, if you want to be a founder, that piece of understanding how a budget is created and what it really costs to do things is, is, is super crucial. And, 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 and again, as you say, really undervalued. Lots of people offer to do it for you, but all they do is you ask you questions and then do what the finance guy can do anyway. So I think finance people in that, you know, if, if in, in that space are, are way more, you know, useful to the, the very creation of business than they, than they realize. But as you say, that piece about then saying, now, if we just throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks, we can go with it. I think what's fun about lots of industries is that, you know, that hidden profitability really is hidden or very, you know, even in, in you know, something like whiskey, which you think is a very old fashioned business and doesn't have anything new to learn. You know, we've, we've kind of taken avenues that are non-standard because we didn't know what we were supposed to do. And as a result, we've ended up building a business that's completely different to what the industry has been like over the last hundred years. But it actually weirdly is where it looks more like how, where the industry is going to over the next 50 years. Yeah. Um, so so that, that does sound interesting when you think that the whiskey space probably had had a bit of disruption, but a lot of the disruption had maybe not, not been in Scotland where you started your business. Uh, and at some level you've been influenced by the startup businesses that you worked with in London, but also other things that you've seen overseas, I think. I think with, with us, you know, we, we, we wanted to build this business. We've probably been working on this for about 10 years, you know, from back when I was working at Halo, we were talking about this. And one of the things, one of the first things that came out of moving into Halo was, you know, it was the smallest business I'd ever worked with at the time, had about 150 staff or so. Um, and I remember meeting the founders and understanding the business and sitting in the room with the, the chief executives and, and uh, you suddenly realized that they didn't have all the answers. You know, 
they were feeling their way towards an answer as much as anybody was. You know, it wasn't as if they knew exactly what was going on. And that moment of clarity that said, they don't know what they're doing and that's okay, was suddenly quite, it released you to then say, well, I can go and do that myself because I don't know what I'm doing either. And, you, you know, I think finance people can be quite you know, reticent and, and conservative in their approach to things. Um, and if you, you release yourself to say, you know, you're going to create a budget for a business that you don't, in an industry you don't understand, and that's fine. And you'll you just keep iterating on it. And, if, you know, as long as you've got a good product and a good plan, you know, you, you, know, you need to have a product, you need to have an, an understanding of what you're trying to get to. But that, that idea that you need to have all the answers up front, you know, is, is wrong. And when you release yourself from that restriction, you, you suddenly find that there's a lot more opportunity out there than you, you would have given yourself credit for. Yeah, um, and 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 that 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 piece where you bring kind of budgeting processes into an early stage business, you know, I I've I've seen it in my experience in a similar manner where it looks like the CFO looks like a controller. You look like you are finding a way to kind of ration how many heads people can have in marketing and technology and all these functions. Um, but if you really unpick the whole of the model, what, what that model is really telling you is helping you to unlock what the story of the business will be. And actually, particularly for a lot of venture backed businesses, whether it will ever be a business. Yeah. I, you, you're seeing the growth and you're seeing much more real time than anybody else because you're the one putting the numbers together you know if somebody says i need an mi i need to uh to see the, the last month's numbers because you're putting them together you you're creating the story and you're creating you're the one who's spotting which graphs to put on which graphs not to put on you know the number of times i've been asked don't include that graph it doesn't show the, the, the answer we're looking for you know in a board presentation because internally of course you've got everything and you actually want to create a, the right presentation for the the board who are effectively being given you know something that may be only half of the truth um at the same time you can internalize all that information and say oh well now i know all this stuff i know i can go out and do this myself because i'm the one who's who's seen where the skeletons are sort of thing so you know how much money marketing is spending and squandering you know how much it costs to, to employ certain people you know in, in finance you're the only person who sees what everyone's paying and that's crucial because payroll is easily the biggest expense you ever have in the first you know two three four years um depending on you know aside from for instance our business where we also construction is a huge expense but you know your day-to-day -day, your your payroll is crucial and if you're the one who knows Jeez, is that guy really worth you know that six-figure salary? Is that person that person's underpaid? We should promote them and give them more money because you don't want them to leave because they're really important. All those things are the ones that you see, um, and because you're the one who's moving the money about, you have a, a, a much more um, you know sticky-fingered approach to giving money away because you know how valuable it is when you're just slinging out you know hundreds of thousands of pounds here and there. Um, you yeah, have no. a, a greater respect for cash. That point you make around um, personnel and understanding kind of value generation, even down to is that person really worth the cost they are for the company each month? You know, th those are really salient points and, and founders think like that. Founders have to think like that. But I think you had observed that in your journey, you know, building your business up in Leaf, because you're not VC backed, you've ended up sort of making decisions perhaps a little bit differently from some of the founders that you worked with down in London. I, I think, yeah, it's 
our industry is so old fashioned that VCs aren't that interested in it. You know, we've, we've tried desperately to get an investment from them, but the cash is all up front in construction and your returns will come five to 10 years down the line and they will come, um, you know, as long as you don't mess things up so badly, they, they should come, but your, your, uh, your upside is relatively fixed. You know, um, this is the flip side of, of something like, you know, you know, Halo or um, any of the sort of standard tech startup model where all your fi financing is dripped in over the line. And as long as you're growing, you keep getting more money and you can scale it, you know, as much as the internet can handle. I think what that's meant is that, you know, we don't have a, a VC backer who's demanding epic growth. You know, we, we can sit there and grow the business in a scalable way without having to bet the farm against it and end up with a, you know, with a bigger a problem on our hands because we've got too much stock or too much, you know, we've spent too much money advertising ourselves in France and we should have been in Germany because that's where the, where the demand to happen to be or, or whatever it might be. So our investors are not those people demanding the growth. What they want to see is, you know, they're, they're actually as, um, you know, much more conservative. They, they want to see a successful business. They don't want to lose their money. They're much more loss averse than a VC is. Um, as long as you're growing roughly to plan and you, you make sure the plan is achievable, then, then they're very, very happy, much more so than if you beat the plan by too much, I think, in, in some ways. Yeah, so, so like, are they, are they more like investors that are looking for a sort of outcome over 15 or 20 years? And have got like a general idea as to what success looks like over a longer time period versus VCs that have this sort of seven three to, to five years. Yeah, yeah. I, I, absolutely. I think you know if if I split our investors down into into a couple of camps, you know the the first is and these ones tend to be at the much smaller end of the scale, but people who like EIS investments because they are almost running their own mini EIS fund and they'll sling ten grand into almost anything. And they're great, but they're never moving the dial for people like us. You know, we can't build this business with ten thousand pounds of investments here and there. They're they're very supportive of those people, but they're they're not existential. You've then got people who are seeing that long-term strategy and are really comfortable with the the, the trajectory of a ten to fifteen-year investment. That even if you know it doesn't sell up and we don't have an exit. What we do have is a very profitable business that will turn over a lot of you know income and you'll get an old-fashioned dividend you know and i think the the thing that we've been very careful to do this whole time um and this is something that we we were we agreed on from the start you know my business partner ian and i was to make sure we were very honest with our investors about saying we do not want to sell we don't have control of the business so if the business if, if the shareholders want to sell they get a good offer then we can't stop them but we've always been very clear to them to say we're not building this business to flip it we're building this business to build it and if you stay with us we can ensure a really good return a really good quality business a very you know a great asset for for edinburgh for scotland for, for the uk and, and so on but also for the industry and people you know product people can be proud of uh and as and if you can if you allow us to keep doing that you'll see super normal returns from that because we're just going to make better whiskey than other people and focusing on that product line i think has been really helpful because it, it just bats away any questions when people say so when are you going to sell to diageo and we say well that's never been in the plan and we told you that when you invested yeah that's really interesting because in in some way 
your your style as a founder, how, how you balance the entrepreneurial skills that you deploy is a reaction to the type of investors that you have because they're they're the people that might be making pressure on you either to make something happen because in VC world there might be a flip not many years away um, and they would do well from that but 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 when your product line has the type of um, kind of periodic cycle that you'll see with whiskey things are going to happen over a completely different time frame I, I think yeah there's there's an interesting moment I had with one of our was a potential investor at the time and I was touring him around our construction site saying this is where we are you know and, and he was looking at a investment of you know 50 to 100,000 and I gave him the full full sales pitch and the whole tour and, and at the end of it he said I've only got one last question why why are you doing this what's the point and it, it's such a cliche to say start with the why and go through that sort of you know mindset when you're thinking about products um, but for us I think the question goes back to that that this, this comment you made just there about, about Flip, you know, I think with founders, there are two kinds of founders. There are two, or two kinds of businesses that can be founded. Businesses that are built to be flipped and businesses that are built to be built. And we've always, you know, looked on this as something that's, that's to be built. We want to build it forever, effectively, and we can keep growing it. You know, if we were in this for the money, we, we would have made a lot more money just sitting in our corporate jobs in London. You know, we, you know, I've, I heard a lot less than I would have done if I'd stayed in London. But that's not the point. The point is to build the business because it's quite enjoyable, because we can build a, a product that we're, we're sort of very proud of. And in the long run, you end up with a business that kind of runs itself and you sort of nip in three or four days a week and have lunch and, and, and relax as long as the product that you've built, you know, is, is the right thing. That's not to say that someone can't come and buy it from under our feet, but we don't, you know, we've never set out to, to achieve that. And I think that's a crucial differentiation between lots of tech startups that are effectively being built specifically to be sold. Mm. Um, and you think very differently because then growth really is important. And are your backend processes uh, as good as you need them to be? Well, who cares? Because if I get consumed by Facebook, it's their problem anyway. You know, I think with us, you know, building out the, the back end of the company and finance is the most obvious, you know, portion of that from, from day one was really important. You know, I've, yeah, it's, it's, it's not unfair to say that one of the reasons that we built this is because I was sick of coming in as finance director of companies and having to spend the first six months unpicking a mess of, of accounting that was badly done and, and meant that no one understand, you know, no one in the business understood what was going on. You know, every company I've, you know, startup I've, I've worked for, the, the, the attitude of the, the bosses towards, you know, finance was, was, not just reflectable, but certainly, you know, it was, it was an afterthought. And I think building out finance from the beginning so that you're confident in the numbers that you're producing actually makes you so much more successful as a business than you realize. And, you know, even, even to the point, you know, and it's, it's not unfair to say, you know, when, when, it, when WeWork's IPO, you know, flopped, I think, you know, apart from the valuation, which was a you know different story, but I think a lot, an awful lot of what, the people who were being asked to invest in that business were actually being, um, you know, scared of was the fact that they didn't they could trust the numbers, and I think that was partly because whenever Adam or or you know Artie Minson, the CFO, was asked a question, they would always look a little bit sketchy because the accounting was terrible, you know, and I begged to take some of that on board and in, in you know in, in my division in London, but there was a there's a very 
it was a very different mindset towards what accounting was. And as a result, I don't think anyone inside the company really believed the numbers, any of the numbers. And I think only now they've probably got the handle on it. And yes, I think it? because you know what you're describing there is you you've got a business that's gone through this very extreme growth stage, staying as a as a business in in startup mode, and part of the culture of that is sadly finance becomes an afterthought, and then you very quickly become you know a public business at scale, uh, and you've unfortunately brought the culture with you, and that's a real weakness suddenly. I think that that comment there, startup mode, is 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 spot on. I think you can you can stay in being in startup mode for you know longer than um, is sensible for the company, uh, for only for so long, and and eventually you get found out about it because you can't run a company as if it's a party for for that long, and it works to a certain extent, you know. But you know, we went from I don't know two thousand employees when I joined to about fifteen thousand when I left. So the, the you know, and that was just in two and a half years. It changed immeasurably during that period. And that was the period of SoftBank, you know, just cutting a blank check to the company. You know, it was it was the classic example of a company that was given too much money and not enough oversight. It, it, I suppose, actually, it, it relates down to a, a separate point around, you know, boards and board structures. You know, I'm not scared of my board because, in, in a way, we've never really ever promised them that much. But also... They're not the people I'm scared of. The people I'm scared of are certain of our larger investors who don't care about sitting on boards, don't want to sit on board meetings anymore, but have been told a certain script by us in terms of what we're trying to do and expect us to deliver on that. And those are the people that I want to make sure I'm happy with or, or, or happy with me. It's very different from a classic board structure where, oh, if the board shouts at you, then, you know, whatever. And, and you know, but you're, it's all about your next funding round. For us, the next funding round is never really an issue. It's more about, do we have the right structures in place that mean the strategy is being implemented properly? And if we're going to if we're going to pivot or change that, then there has to be a very good reason for that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes um, a huge amount of sense because certainly boards in uh, VC-backed businesses, they're they're almost rotating every twenty four months because as you bring on your new money, that brings on a new investor director, somebody else who invested three or four years back might 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 need to move on and you don't get the sort of long-term stewardship you might get in a business which is a bit more I think, yeah. a longer time horizon that's a super smart comment and i think that's exactly what i was trying to say i think you don't get that long-term presence from people who've understood what the business is you know one of the things that we were told when we started from somewhat old-fashioned investors was you must have a really strong board i want to see a strong board i want to see all these industry big groups on there and we ne- we've never done that and I struggle to ever see a board who's held a company management to account properly, you know, in a way that justifies the amount of money or options or whatever it is to get paid. If I look at WeWork, which, you know, was desperately in need of a board that was, that was strong. Uh, there was, there was zero oversight from SoftBank in terms of what we we're up to inside the company. And there should have been, there should have been, you know, and eventually they, they, you know, after a failed IPO, they got there. You know, the flip side, you, you know, I remember my CFO at Halo coming back from board meetings, you know, shaking with not rage, but just the fights that would go on on that board. These are not constructive places. And they were, I think, VCs trying to flex their muscles because the plan wasn't being, you know, wasn't going to, wasn't going to plan. Yeah. I, think, I think I've only ever heard of one legitimate use of a board member, which was when Airbnb was told by Mark Anderson when when they said to him we want to guarantee 
$10,000 worth of damage to someone's apartment during a, a rental. He said, make it 50,000. And I think giving him giving them the authority to, he said, that, you know, they said, we need to make this gamble. He said, well, if you're gonna gamble, gamble big. That was, that was good, that's good advice. Yeah, that, I'm really struggling to find examples of boards that have actually done their job. Astonishing. That's partly though, because what is the standard that the board needs to achieve? And 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 even if there were a uniform standard that the board would, would aspire to achieve, how would that be measured even when these things are essentially private meetings? Um, it's you know, huge variability in the sort of quality of boards that we see. And we see other startup CFO members mentioning this. I wonder, actually, it's, as you say there, it's about, you know, the, the board members probably all have different agendas. And I think what's crucial for us is from the start, always being very clear with our investors as to what we're trying to achieve and never wavering from that. It's always been a company that's going to be built. We're not going to be flipping it. We're going to build it towards creating this product that means we need a certain amount of cash that can build this, you know, finish the building, start production of spirit mature that, sell it in the background, you know, run a tourism operation that pays for the cash flows and, and just focus on that, you know, and any change to that plan has been, you know, opportunistic investments into other, other things that we're doing that we're supposed to create cash flow and help. We can make more cash flow if we do it this way, or we need a bit more cash to invest in that because it's taking more cash than we expected. You know, th that's fine. I think the crucial thing is that when we've talked to our investors, we've always been very clear that that's the, that's the strategy. And as a result, everyone, there's, there's no arguments in the company because we've never waited from that. And, I, mm. and I, 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 maybe we're just lucky in that we've taken so long to, to fulfill the first half of the strategy. You know, building a, building a building throughout the pandemic has been um, time consuming and we've, we've experienced a few delays. Now, thankfully, that's been quite, you know, people have been quite patient with us because obviously there has been a slight you know different business market in the last few years but i think um not you know not flipping you know constantly pivoting and changing the strategy the whole time mean, means that our investors at least have faith that we roughly you know even if we don't know what we're doing we at least are sticking to the, the script yeah that interaction where you've got a business you build a distillery it's very capital intensive uh the time horizon on some of your uh, products quite quite long frankly uh, but you've approached this in a novel manner and you and your partner your other founder you've you've looked at the traditional whiskey distilling business and you've learned a few lessons and you look to try and bring that into some some different cash flow structures so how does that work how have you kind of de-risked building a brand new distillery i think we Again, I don't know if this is just luck, but we spotted this opportunity in the industry that people, you know, of our age and, and younger were much more interested in a much stronger link between them and the companies whose products they buy than in the in the past. I think people are much more interested in that sort of visceral interaction between them and and their brands. And and that can go both ways. You know, you see the problems that Brewdog is is currently experiencing when you know, their founder is shown to not necessarily be, you know, living up to the values which he's been espousing over the years. And you can, you, you can, you can destroy a business quite quickly on that. But for us, we said, if we can create something where there's that interaction, so crucially, having a, a building where, you know, you can come and watch us make whiskey, and you can experience that whiskey making journey with us, and you can have some fun with us as we taste products as, as they mature, and, and we can 
try different things. You know, we've, we've created products that no one else in the industry has ever done before because we don't have any baggage or any history or any legacy to, to worry about. It means, you know, we've, whenever somebody says, why aren't you building a building that looks like a normal whiskey distillery? Why does it look like a, a modernist cube? And, and the answer is always, look, you know, if you're going to be modern, you've got to be modern. Don't try and be old because, you know, the whiskey industry has old sewn up you know, Diageo and McAllen and those guys, they, they know how to be old, but we're new. So we might as well try and be new and use that to our advantage. So by creating this model that's based around tourism and engagement and people coming to see us and, and, and spending time inside the building and spending time with, you know, in the bar and the shop and the restaurant and the, and the tastings, it means that we've got that much stronger link between us and the customer than you know, anyone else has. So they might go back to Arkansas, uh, you know, but if they see our bottle on the shelf, they'll say, oh, I remember I went there. That was a really cool place. I'll buy that bottle. And, and that level of marketing is very hard to buy. Interesting. Well, that piece where you're leading with being, being modern, being you, having an experience on site and that meaning something for you and that, and that being the sort of anchor for your brand loyalty beyond just seeing the brand on the supermarket shelf. That's a very interesting approach. I think... The greatest thing about being a, a company that makes a real product is that ability to be, a, you know, not have to worry about the, um, you know, the, the tech world, which has nothing that connects you between, um, you know, the, the, if the tech industry has a, has a fault, is that there's no sense of place. You know, Google is everywhere and nowhere. Same with Facebook, you know, Instagram lives on your phone. There's nothing that really connects you to those, those brands. Um, Whereas if you can come and see us directly and have fun in our space and, and you know, meet the team and have a nice conversation with someone and, and talk about what you're about to drink and understand how it's made, that is a, such a big change from, um, uh, you know, for, for, for somebody if they're dealing with a new brand that means that they can have a, a lot more, you know, hopefully they, they can enjoy that experience more than if, if you just said, hey, here's my app, download it. And you say, I don't care. Yeah, it's it's almost a sort of antidote to the fact that over time, younger generations consume more things that are digital and therefore don't have a sense of occasion and place because it's everywhere, it's with you all the time. Uh, and so it's kind of a year's antidote for that. And actually, Paddy, um, we could use this to um, link to your product. So why don't you give us a kind of 30-second rundown on the products we would have released, you know, just to what available. Sure. So I think it's become a little bit cliched, perhaps. But the first thing we did was um, uh, create a gin brand. Uh, the difficulty with whiskey, of course, is that if you make it, you need it to be matured before you can sell it. With, with gin, you make it today and you can sell it within a, within a week. So we did it not necessarily because we we want we thought we could make something new in the, in the gin world. There's an awful lot of gins out there. But I think what we thought we could do was build up a very classic, very timeless product that wasn't trying to be too much at once and crucially would allow us to build up a distribution network and, and think of it more from the back end of it. You know, what do we want from this product? Well, we want to, we want to meet um, consumers in terms of bars, restaurants, wholesalers. We want to meet bottle shops. We want to meet people and, understand, and, and build up that network of, of, of contacts that allows us to then sell whiskey to them in the future. Um, in fact, it's, it's become a hell of a lot more successful than we ever realized. I, I think purely because, you know, we, we, we built a very classic branding around it. We were, again, we weren't 
all singing, all dancing. Here's a you know crazy flavor thing. It was very simple, but it has a has a strong sense of identity, and we're not messing with that. So that was the first thing we did. Um, the other thing that we noticed was, as you're dealing with whiskey, you there's this conversation around wood, and you know how do you sell a whiskey's differentiation? You can sell an age, or you can sell a sort of I mean, it's not really a flavor thing, but it's about saying this has been matured in sherry, this has been matured in port casks, this has been matured in bourbon casks, and and that conversation is is quite a fun one to have with the customer because, so, what we wanted to do was actually showcase the products that sit behind that maturation strategy. So you're saying to somebody, drink this whiskey, it's matured in a sherry cask, and the person goes, oh, that's fantastic, I love sherry whiskey, and you say, well, do you ever drink sherry? And they say, no, of course I don't drink sherry, that's ridiculous. And which is a shame because sherry is is a wonderful product and massively underrated and extremely cheap. Very, very, you know, um, it, it takes as long, almost as long to make sherry as it does to make whiskey. And yet this, you know, it's for sale for a tenth of the price. So um, we've been importing sherry now for four years from Spain and it's growing. It's, it's never going to be huge, but it's been growing every year quite nicely. And I think that's been a really great product to have as a, as a sideline. We've also brought in tawny port. That's something we've been doing as well. Um, um, it's much easier to sell port than it is to sell sherry. Mm. Um, and and, and, and we, have we successfully uh, persuaded you to do a promo for the startup CFO? Oh, we, we, well, you have. <laughs> you, you, oh, you trust my own guy. Yes, of course. Uh, we. I will be putting a um, a code into the the, the Slack channel at some point um, before Christmas with a startup CFO promo. No, we should, we should because I'm 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 intrigued by the sherry angle. So uh, the question I've got on that actually, which which is leaping well beyond um, CFO's journeys into being a founder and how to build a business that's got a a time horizon much bigger than VC world, right? Um, so the question I've got is, uh, does your heritage in building a whiskey distillery, how does that impact your decision as to what sherry you would offer under your brand? The classic example of a sherried whiskey is an Oloroso sherry. Sherry, one of the problems that sherry as an industry has is that you, people use the word sherry as if it's meaningful. And, and that's like using the word beer. It, it's such a broad spectrum of products that it doesn't make any sense to say, I like sherry or I don't like sherry. You know, someone could love IPAs and hate lagers and vice versa. And, and I think it's, you know, with sherry, you know, the, the, the spectrum of the product goes from bone dry, you know, finos and manzanias all the way up to like treacly sweet Pedro Jimenez. And I, I I want people to understand that actually sherry as a concept is an awful lot more flavorsome than than they've, they've probably, you know, if they've just said, oh, I don't like Harvey's Bristol cream and that's, you know, it's too sweet for me. That's fine. There's a, there's a dry sherry for you. Don't worry. It's all there. So um, the classic whiskey sherry if you will is oloroso which is one step up from the dry the driest end of the spectrum it's super nutty it's got a lot of real like dried fruits um flavors going on in there a lot of stone fruit and very very complex um very dark uh as a pre-dinner drink with some salted roasted almonds it's out of this world and i think that's where we started we're building up a wider portfolio of different sherries. We, we work with one producer in uh in San Lucar de Baramea, who is also producing the casks that we'll use to mature the, sh the whiskey. And, and that connection is really important to us in that 
it's all very well to say here's a cask whiskey that came from a sherry cask. I want to also say, but you should try this guy's sherry because it's it's delicious. And these guys are are doing some really cool things with with what they're doing with sherry. So I wanted to 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 promote that. Yeah, that that sounds exciting. And and actually, interesting that you're happy to sort of take a line of product that perhaps hasn't been that sexy in the drinks industry for a decade or two uh and really try to kind of uh elevate it and, and, and make it relevant for people that, that that might have arrived at your um your venue interested in whiskey and you're able to kind of build an understanding of the whiskey development process and how you might learn a lot from sherry and you know sort of you know particularly understanding swallow rosso and the type of flavors that you get through that um that's a really interesting approach uh, I, I think it sort of it goes back to one of the, the tenets of our um, business plan, which was all around you know a comment someone made to me a few years ago, which was you know, and they were specifically referring to Amazon Web Services (AWS), and they mm. said, "Look, Amazon doesn't make much money from selling goods and services. It, you know, that pays the bills, it makes all of its money from AWS. And if you can work out how to sell your byproducts, you." you know, for profit, you, your business will, will make tons of cash because mm. they're free effectively. You know, AWS was built internally by Amazon as a, it's because they, they needed it for its own, their own servers. Um, and they managed to work out a way of, of monetizing that into something that's an awful lot more profitable than, than their retail arms. I think with us, I don't think selling sherry will ever make as much money as, as AWS, although it'd be nice. Um, I don't think there's enough sherry in the world. We crucially said, you know, and I, and I said to Ian, you know, my, my business partner, my co-founder, from the start, that we absolutely must broaden our offering from the start because if you've got a sales team and a marketing team and a production team and a finance team and you've got one product, you're restricting that team's abilities to, you know, you, you only give them half their job. With physical products, it's so much more easy to build onto it. Now, I'm not saying throw everything against the wall because you'll get unstuck on working capital. But if you can carefully manage your working capital around buying product and, and increasing your range, you know, we started with John Lewis, for instance, selling them gin, so selling them Linden Lime, which is our brand at the start. And then within a year, they were taking our sherry, they were taking our port. We now also import uh, champagne under our own label. And they've started taking that as well. In fact, they're Ooh. our biggest. They're our biggest champagne. Um, in fact, I've got a problem because I need to. I need to order another three hundred thousand pounds worth of champagne, and wow. capital isn't in my cash flow budget. So, <laughs> you know, it's all these issues around this kind of stuff. But I think, you know, the 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 byproduct for me was the fact that our our branding is very cool. You know, we spend an awful lot of time making sure that everything is branded properly. We think that by being a modern, you know, uh, producer, we can create brands that resonate with the consumer uh, better than other. Yeah, that's our USP, in a way, that's our secret source. And by focusing on those byproducts of, well, I'm selling to John Lewis anyway, so I may as well throw another four products in front of their nose. It turns out, yeah, they'll take them. And, and that's been true across all the world. You know, you, you, you start a beachhead with, with a product like Linden Lime, which has been crazy successful. And then they just, you know, that sells the rest of the portfolio for us. And we, we we bring more stuff into it from there. Yeah. So that that's a great story and a great one to end on. I think, Paddy. Look, it's been great to have you on the podcast. You've you've taken us on a journey from 
some of the challenges building a finance function in a startup where maybe uh, finance's role is not front and center, not, not, not yet. We've understood the difference between kind of building a business for the long run rather than for a flip that might be the case in maybe tech or a VC-backed business and how, how different that can be, how your board interactions might be so different all the way through to uh, building a great brand that's experience-driven that allows you very quickly to diversify into a sherry offering, champagne example. Yeah, it's really exciting stuff, Paddy. And, you know, it's great for me as one of the founders of Startup CFO that we see great finance execs going into these roles and becoming founders. Thanks, Guy, very much indeed for having me. Been amazing to build an understanding of Paddy Flesh's career journey and how his finance background has enabled him to build his experience driven brand. If you're a tech CFO and you want to join the group, go to startupcfo.tech and apply. And if you like the sound of Paddy's gin and sherry, then go to leafdistillery.com. And of course, if you like the sound of this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>